Lord, we just ask you to bless this night. Bless us as we study your word. Guide and lead us. Help us to see what you would have us to see. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 5. Starting at verse 1. I will sing a song to my well-beloved, a song of my well-beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof. He planted it with the choicest vines. He planted a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked at that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Oh, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. It could have been done more to, what more could I have done to my vineyard than I have done in it? Wherefore, when I looked on it, that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. And to break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. I will lay waste. It shall not be pruned, but digged. And there shall come up briars and thorns. I will command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord's host is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plants. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. All right, so we have this story that kind of sounds familiar if you've been in other various parts of the Bible. And God says, starts out with a very beautiful thing. I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And this could either be Isaiah singing, but I have a feeling it's the father singing to his beloved Jesus, the son who builds the builds this. And there's it's kind of interesting because there's no um, antecedent for the I in here. Um, so I usually think, though, in this, because the well-beloved is definitely Jesus, because he's the one that builds this vineyard. He's the one that digs it up. And it could be, like I say, it could be Isaiah. Deuteronomy 33.12 talks about God planting a vineyard. The Song of Solomon is a beautiful song about the vineyard and the, and the beloved bride, which is a picture of Jesus and his church, if you, if you remember that uh, book. And we see this theme of the vineyard. In John, Jeremiah 12, verse 10, It says, many pastors have destroyed my vineyards. They have trodden my portion under feet. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolate. And being desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land has become desolate because, I, because no man lays it to heart. So God has this idea that Israel has been spoiled. He created it for something, and it has not been taken care of. And it says even their spiritual leaders have not taken care of it. And this is the day that Isaiah is living in. He's living in a time, he starts ministering when King Uzziah reigns, and King Uzziah is a really good king. And then he continues to be the prophet through a whole series of bad kings. And so he's going to see Israel go downhill, and he's going to see the heartbreak that that has, both to God and to himself as a spiritual leader. And this is something, as I look at our country, I see the with heartbreak how far down our country's going and knowing that it's only going to get worse probably, but yet that doesn't help watching how far it's fallen and seeing how bad things are getting and praying for a revival. 
God, let there be revival. And it needs to start in the churches. But he says, he created this vineyard, and it says, I will sing a song to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My beloved, well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. So he's planting a vineyard in a place that should produce good fruit, a fruitful hill. And this is what Isaiah's getting ready to lament, lament over, that Israel is going the wrong way. And it's, this is what he's going to talk about, how God is going to be angry with, with this. It says in verse 2, he fenced it, he gathered out the stones thereof, he planted it with the choicest vine, he built a tower in the midst of it, and he made a wine press therein. He looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. So this is, he put a fence around it. And if you're going to have a vineyard especially, you pretty much need a fence around it, otherwise the animals get into it. And when this fence is talking about a wood, not a wooden fence, but a, a stone fence, something that will hold out the majority of the animals, not all of them. And he says he's protected it with a fence. He gathered out all the stones. Anything that would make it hard for the plants to grow, to grow, he took out. And he planted it with a choice vine. He went out and picked the best seeds, the best vines. And this is also not just a picture of Israel, but a picture of us as the church. God puts a fence around us. If you remember in Job when God says, Job, if you consider, uh, Satan, if you consider my servant Job, Job says, yeah, I have, but you've got this fence around him. God puts a fence around us as his children. And this fence doesn't keep the enemy out completely, but it does limit the enemy's access to us to whatever God allows. And sometimes we may think, God, you allow way too much trouble to come my way, but God knows what he's doing. And I heard one of the pastors today when I was driving to here saying, God lets trials come into our life basically to prove our maturity level. Now, how many times we thought, God, I've got it all together. I'm mature. I know what I'm doing. And then all of a sudden a trial comes in and we fall flat on our face and say, well, I guess I'm not as far along as I probably thought I was. And God is doing that on purpose because he wants us to be dependent upon him completely. And here he says, I've taken out the stones. I've created a fence around it. I have picked the best seeds to plant in this vineyard. And then he goes even further. He goes, I built a tower. And this isn't a strong tower. This literally is a platform tower so that they could visualize, visually see the whole uh, field. It wasn't one for defense, but it was one that they could stand up on and see if there's fire, see if there's animals in it, and be able to get to it. It's not a, not a defensible tower. Not even really a watchtower. They actually describe it more like a raised platform or a pulpit, <laughs> something up high where you stood above what was going on and could look over. So a watchtower in one sense, but more of just a platform. You, it's where you went up and you go, okay, you, you harvesters over there, there's, you know, I need you over there, or you work, you pruners over here. Uh, you're making sure where you could stand and watch your workers. You could watch the, the growth and make sure that things are looking good. Okay, so it's not really a strong tower or even a watchtower. It's just a watchtower is a better definition, but it's a raised platform. It's not a real fancy one. It's, it's just something where he can stand up and watch what's going over his garden. And, and then he said, and I also put in a wine press, a wine press so that he could get the reward of his grapes. 
All right, we're going to turn this wine into uh, this, these grapes into wine for the festivals and in, enjoying. And this is something that God does in our life. He puts a pulpit in our life and he watches over us and places leaders over us to watch over us. But this is what he's talking about. He's produced this place that is conducive to growth. And as Christians, we're in that same type of growth. We are to be embedded into Christ, the, the true vine. We are to be his, his servant. He watches as he prunes us. He says the Father cuts away everything that's dead, and most of us don't like that when he's cutting away the dead stuff out of our life because it tends to hurt a little bit. <laughs> but we know that if you know anything about uh, taking care of plants, if you d take away the dead stuff, it helps the plant grow and the nutrients go to the, where they need to go. You pull away the extra flowers and the plant gets bigger. And so he's saying all these things God has done with his vineyard, or Jesus in this case has done with his vineyard. And it says, he went to get the grapes and wild grapes came up. And wild grapes in this word literally means stink berries or nauseous or irritating uh, fruit. And uh, I've had a couple of times when I grabbed you know, what I thought was something else and ended up you know, spitting it back out because it tasted so bad. It looked like something that was good, you know, normally good and you tasted it and it was awful. And this is what God's saying, you know, hey, I planted this perfect garden and what I get is something that's nauseating. I can't, I can't eat it. We can't make wine out of it. It's nothing that I can use. And this is specifically, as we looked in verse 7, is talking about Israel. This is Israel. God planted them. It says in several places that God is the husband to Israel, that Israel is the wife of God. They had an intimate relationship that they never seemed to really fulfill as much as the church talks about fulfilling Jesus Christ being the bride and we being the bridegroom. Israel never seemed to have that intimate relationship with God through most of their, most of their time. Now, there were people that seemed to have that. David seemed to have a, an intimacy with God. Samuel seemed to have an intimacy with God. Joseph had an intimacy with him. I mean, there's certain people in there, but overall, their life was built upon ritual. You know, do these things and you please God. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians act that way. God, I'm going to do my service. I'm going to go to church on Sunday morning. I did my service to you, God. Now I can go do whatever I want the rest of the, 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 rest of the, the week. Okay, I gave you my two hours, an hour, two hours. God, I can go you know, do whatever I want for you. I did my, did my duty. Might be really spiritual. I'm going to read my Bible every day, God. I'm going to give you a half hour, you know, 10, 15 minutes, half hour of my day at the beginning and read my Bible. And I've done my duty. And many Christians have this little checklist. Okay, God, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. Okay, I can go do whatever I want for the rest of the, of the week. And God's saying, no, I want, a, I want an intimacy. I want an intimacy with you. And here he's saying, I've created this and I don't have this intimacy. Again, we, I talk about this vineyard being a picture also in the Song of Solomon. The vineyard where the, where the bride and the bridegroom come together. Uh, so... God has this intimacy in mind. And Israel kept going, okay, God, we're going to go to the temple. We'll offer our sacrifices. We'll give you our tithes. But just kind of leave us alone the rest of the time. And we'll do what you told us to do, but just you know, that's as far as it went. And this is why in the Bible so many of these stories stand out because there are people who had an intimate relationship with God. If you look at a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says, I will not bow down to this idol 
because I'm going to follow God. No matter what you do, I'm not going to bow down. A Daniel, when it becomes illegal to pray to anybody but King Nebuchadnezzar for, uh, for a while, says, I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to pray to my God, even if it costs me my life. And this is what God's looking for. Are we willing to put our trust in him? Or is it just ritual? Do we live just by ritual? And it's easy to follow ritual. Ritual's easy. God, I get up in the morning, I say my prayers, I read my Bible, I plan to talk to one person sometime today, you know, if we're really being spiritual, we're marking down our checklist. God, I'm church, church on these nights and these days, and I'm going to be okay. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, as long as you're not doing it just to mark off boxes, so God, I did my part. When we go in and we get into the Word and we're looking for God and saying, God, where are you? Well, show me what you want me to do. God, give me divine appointments today on who I'm to talk to. God, I want to just pray with you. God, I want to go to church and meet, meet with other Christians. And, you know, we want to be able to also understand that uh, church is not the building. Okay? Uh, I thought about it long after the gentleman we talked to on Saturday morning saying that outdoors was his church. And I, wanted, you know, I thought I probably should have followed up with that and, you know, trying to make sure he understood what church is. The church is not this building. You know, it gives the church a place to meet, and then we call it a church, but it is not the church. The church is every one of us. We could meet in anybody's home or out on the field or up on the mountain. If we're together, we're the church coming together to worship God. And here we're seeing this idea of God creating this beautiful place for everybody, and all they want to do is follow the ritual and not have an intimate relationship, and they end up producing sour grapes. <laughs> Sour grapes, wild grapes, whatever term you want to use on that. And in verse nine, uh, 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my garden, my vineyard. What could I have done more to my vineyard than I have done for it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. So he says, okay, I've done everything I can. You judge. You judge between you and me. In... Uh, Matthew 20, verse 1, it talks about the kingdom of heaven being like the man who went to his son and said, go to, my gar go to the vineyard and work. And he says, I will not, and later on did. Then he went to his other son and says, go to, go to the vineyard and work. And he says, I will, and he didn't. You know, and God says, the one who did it was the actual obedient one. Even though he started out on the wrong foot, <laughs> you know, God's looking for that. We may start out on the wrong foot, but as long as we get to surrendering to him, he's happy. And I, in, in Proverbs 21, 28, it talks about this same picture, God creating a vineyard, plant, putting a wall around it, putting a tower in it, uh, digging out all the rocks. And then he says he hired it out to, uh, in, to keepers. And when he sent the servants to go gather his pay for it, they beat and killed the servants. And you remember the story? Then he said, I'm going to send my son. Maybe they'll honor him. And they killed the son. And he says, then he took the army and destroyed the, them. Again, the same type of picture. God has a special place that he says, this is mine. And this takes us into that Jeremiah verse where it says, the pastors have de defiled my, my vineyard. And this is one of the things that happened so many times in Israel. Even the spiritual leaders did not honor God and follow God. And you know, the sad thing is, in our day and age, we're seeing the same thing. There are churches out there that have people who call themselves pastors that aren't preaching the word of God, aren't telling people their need for God, and it's sad. 
And unfortunately, it's probably becoming a majority of churches out there now. And when people say it's getting harder to find a good church, I think it's true that it is getting harder to find a good church that lifts up God's word and says, we're going to teach God's word, not man's thoughts about God's word. And you know, so we need to pray because the church has to be corrected. The church has to come to repentance, has to come to revival, and not try to just get people in. Uh, I've had discussions with people, and my goal is not just to build a big church that doesn't know anything about God. My goal is to build whatever size church God's going to give us, but with people knowing God, having an intimate relationship with God that says, I know God, and God is changing my life. And, as, and I've said this before, I'd rather have the small church like we have, 20, 30 people with people growing, than hundreds of people where very few people are growing. Because I want to see people grow. And it's hard sometimes to define what a, what a growing church is. You know, okay, you've got a really growing church. You've got 30,000 people in your, in your church. How many of them are going to heaven? Well, I don't know. We never talk about sin and salvation and and all this. We just talk about God loves them and cares for them. I'm going, well, that's good. And it may send them to hell. You know, we need to be careful. Jesus so often said things that made people upset with him and turned away from him. You know, and one time he says, you've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, talking about the spiritual. And he said, many left, that he, so many left that he turned to the disciples, the, 13, uh, the 12, and said, are you going to leave me? And they go, well, where else do we have to go? Too many times we'll hear something that's hard, and we see it so many times in a church. There's people who are church hoppers. Every, every three to five years, they get their feelings hurt or don't feel like their needs are being met, and they will go to another church. And they need to find out why they're not being fed because they have to take some responsibility in that. And, and I've said it over and over. If your toes aren't being stepped on once in a while, the pastor's not doing his job. And not that he does it on purpose. I get my toes stepped on all the time when I'm listening to these guys on the radio, and I'm not even one of their, in, in their church, and they step on my toes. <laughs> now, that is true teaching of the word, because the word will convict and say, this is what you're supposed to do. And that's when we go before God and say, God, help me. I need, I need you to help me change. And here he says, you know, hey, I, I, built this, I built this vineyard. It was supposed to produce good, and it produced sour. And it says, what more could I have done? And you look at this, and it doesn't look like you could have done much more. Okay, he prepared the ground. He, he put a fence around it. He put the wine press in. Uh, in our day, he might have put a uh, watering system in. And, you know, but that's basically what he's saying. What, to, to the best of their ability in that day, he says, I've done everything. I've done everything, and it didn't do anything. And then verse 5, it says, Now go, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. I will lie it to waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged, and there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will command the clouds that they bring, that they rain no more upon it. Have you ever been in a place in your life where this seems to be the case, where God has taken down the fences and the, and the protections? I don't think as a Christian that he will take it completely away. But he'll let things happen to us to try to get our attention. God does not let us live in sin. He does not live, let us live in rebellion, especially if we're children, but even if we're not his children. He's not going to let people 
live in rebellion without suffering the consequences of that rebellion. For Christians, it happens real fast. How many times have you done something that you knew was wrong and you knew you weren't supposed to do it and you're being convicted all the way through it? And then you get done with it and you have to say, okay, God, uh, yeah, I, I kind of blew it this time again. Or you're not under conviction when you do it, but you get done with it and say, man, I shouldn't have done that. Then we get to be in David's place and try to repent quicker than David did. You know, David took over nine months to repent from his adultery and murder for, in the case of Bathsheba and Uriah. Over nine months before he finally repented. Some of us have taken that long. Some, of, some people have taken decades to repent. And God's saying, I'm going to make life miserable until you, until you repent, especially for his children. But even if you're not his child, we know when we do wrong. And in, in Romans, God tells us he's going to judge man not just by his laws, because they're guilty by God's laws. Right up, right up front, they're guilty by, by God's laws. He's going to judge them by their own laws. People will come around and they will say, I can't do this, or we shouldn't do this, or we can't do this. And then they'll turn around and do it anyway. They'll violate their own standards. And God's saying, not only can you not keep my standards, you can't even keep your own standards. You are guilty. And this is true with people. This is why it's not hard to convince people that they are sinners. Because when you come right down to it, they don't even have to violate God's rules. They'll know that something's wrong and still do what's wrong. Cheat people, steal from people, take advantage of people, knowing that it's wrong by their own rules. Not only God's rules. So when he judges them, it's going to be, okay, you violated my rules. And in case that was enough, and you say, well, I didn't know your rules, God. He goes, you also violated your own rules. You violated your own rules. You knew that these things were wrong, and you still did them. And this is true of every single human being. We violate even our norms and standards that we live under. Our rules are good. Either way. Either way, because sometimes you get a, in a business or something, there's certain things that are done that are just accepted by the norm. And we all have things in our life that are our rules. Okay, they're not necessarily right, wrong. They're not God's rules. They're not, but yet we will violate our own rules and not stay consistent to our own rules. But God will also use governmental rules and business rules and say, okay, you, didn't, you thought you couldn't, didn't know my rules. What about all these rules that you did know that you violated? Man is not going to be guiltless when they stand before, when they stand before God. Because even if they think, well, I don't know God's rules, going, God's going to say, well, you violated your own rules of life. Because every single person has done that. I would never do such and such, whether it's godly or not, and then they end up doing it. Okay? And God says, even, even, if, you are, even if we take and not accept my rules, you still have violated your rules. You are guilty. You are, are guilty of not living the right way. And this is one of those things that people are going to see when they stand before God at the white throne judgment. God's going to show them all the places they violated his rules, and he's going to show them all the other places they violated. So there's no way they can say, well, I didn't know, or I didn't know that was wrong. And God will say, yeah, yeah. when you broke your own family rules, your own day-to-day -day living rules, you knew those were wrong. Might not have been my laws, but you knew those were wrong. And it's kind of interesting, every group has rules. Okay? The convicts out of the prison have rules. Now, most of us in day-to-day -day normal life would never accept most of what they consider normal 
but they break their own rules too. Okay, and their rules are already bad, and they, yet they will break their own rules. Okay, gang members have the same thing. There's a code of ethics in a gang, and many times people in the gangs break their own rules. And God's going to say, whether, whether you understand it or not, you may not know my rules, but you have violated your own rules. You have not kept yourself pure. And this is what's going to send people to hell. This answers also the question when people go, well, what about that poor savage in the middle of the Africa who's never heard God's about Jesus? And God's going to say, they violated their own rules. They violated their own rules. We, we knew there was something more. We just didn't know what it was. And God says, here's, here's the rest of the story. Here's the rest. This is, this is the completion. You honored what you knew of the story? Good. And you know, God gave the salvation message all the way at the beginning. All these different tribes that have been around, they know there's a Messiah coming. Because it all goes down to the Adam and Eve story. They know that there's something coming that is bigger than they are that's their rescuer. This is why a Messiah resonates with people. Whether they're a Christian or a Jew, the idea of a Savior coming to rescue resonates with people because it's part of the internal story of God. And the fact that we can't keep his laws is out there amongst people. And then that fact that I need God to be my deliverer is really what it comes down to. God, I need you. Okay? I don't know what I need, but I need you. And those people are going to be called upon God for their salvation. And so we're going to see here he says, I'm going to tear down my heart. I'm going to tear down the fence. I'm going to let it be trodden down. I'm going to let it go to waste. And specifically in Israel's case, he sent them into Assyria. He sent them into Babylon. At the end of the Roman Empire, he scattered them around the known Roman Empire. He more than once literally took the fences down and sent his people out into the world because of their disobedience. And God will do that with his children. If we get so disobedient, he will let down the fences. Say, okay, I gave you all this protection. Now let's see how you handle the enemy really coming and harassing you. And it's not for us to get hurt or, or abused. It's for us to repent and come back to him. Because if you look even at the story of Job, Job went through as close to a living hell as anybody on, man, on earth has ever gone through. And when he finally came back, and you know, at the very end, he goes, toward the end, he's going, God, just show up so I can defend myself. If you show up, I'll, I will let you know what I, what I have to defend. And as soon as God shows up, he says, I held my mouth shut. He didn't have a word to say to God. And God, he repented before God and, and was rewarded back to where he was supposed to be. But this is what God is saying. I will open up and let things happen. And you know, in the long run, these trials that we go through are for our good. They don't seem like it, but they are for our good because it keeps our eyes focused on God. Helps me look to God and, and know that I can do nothing. When the, in the New Testament it says, Without Christ, I can do nothing. We need to really get to the place where we realize without him, we can do nothing. Too many times we start getting puffed up and, and exalted in our own eyes and say, God, I've got this all put together. I, 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 can, I can get by and do some of these things. And God says, okay, let's see how you can do it without me. And we fall flat on our face, whether it be serving him in some way or being faithful or not committing a certain sin or being a teacher even. God, I've got this. I can teach without you. And you end up giving the worst lesson that you've ever, 
never gave me because God says, okay, let's see how good your lessons are without me. Let's see how good you can live a life without the Holy Spirit guiding you in each step of the, step of the way. Let's just look at <laughs> where you're at. And, you know, most of us have these bouts where we just think we're something all of a sudden. God, I've been, I have been so faithful, God. I have not missed a day at church in, in six months, five years, ten years. Uh, when I was growing up, they used to give Sunday school award patches. You know, every year you got a little, little thing to go on a little badge. And I saw guys with badges, you know, 20, 30 years of faithful service of church. You know, and it's, I'm going, okay, so what does it mean? Well, I come to church every week. And? You know, and what, is, what does that mean? And you know, you all know I really believe that church is important. Coming to church is really important. But if the only reason you're coming to church is so you can check off a box saying, God, I came to church, don't come. Because you're not getting what you need. If the whole time you're in church thinking, okay, God, uh, what's going on? At noon, the, the race starts at, at, at 1230. The football game starts at 1. The, the baseball game starts at whatever time baseball games start to have to. Now, uh, the roast is getting ready to start. I've got to make sure I get it started so we can eat dinner or it'll be ready at. If that's all we're thinking about when we're at church, we might as well not be here because we're not there for the right reasons. We're not learning. We're not, we're not ministering to one another. We're not edifying one another. And church is the meeting of the ecclesia, the, the believers that says, we're going to rub each other wrong sometimes. We're going to build each other up. But we, we need each other the gathering together of fellow like-minded people to build up and edify. Then in verse 7 it says, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. He says, This is my people. I'm looking at them, and I'm not getting what I expected. I planted good seed, and up pops pops the, the, the bad seed. In the parable that Jesus told, told of the wheat and the tares, he, he plants wheat and they get up in the next day and there's tares growing in it, which is something that looks like wheat but isn't. And he says, an enemy has done this. And the angels immediately were going to go, we'll go tail out all the, all the tares. And he goes, no, let them grow and then at harvest time we'll separate them so that you don't harm the wheat. And what he's trying to tell us in that is in the church, there are tares. There are people who look like Christians that aren't. That aren't Christians. They may look like it. They may even act like Christians to a degree, but they're not followers of Christ. All they are is people checking off boxes. Even people that go to church every single day, every time the doors are open, they're in church. They might even be reading their Bible every day. They might even be going to the prisons and the hospitals. And those are the ones Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Over the years, I've seen many people in their 60s, 70s, 80s all of a sudden realize they don't know God and come to God and humble themselves and say, man, I've been in church all my life, but I've never known the God that you talk about. Never known the God who wants to have a relationship with me. All I had was a bunch of rules. And this is why I talk about relationship all the time, because if it's just rules, it's religion. And that's what religion is. Do enough good deeds and please the deity with all the good deeds and you'll be okay when it comes time to go to heaven. And God says, no, we're in a relationship. You in me and I in you and we're together and you're going to have a relationship with me and I'm going to cover you with my blood and make you my child. And once you're in him, it's a wonderful place to be, as all of you know in this room. To be in him is the place to be. 
not checking off box, not saying, well, I can't do anything on a, on a study night, or I can't do this, or I can't do that. God's going, you've got the liberty. Yeah. And I tell people, if you want to go camping on a Sunday, then go camping. If God says to go camping, go camping. That might be the best thing to do with your family some weekend. Go with your family and minister to your family. But if you do it every weekend, you probably have a problem. <laughs> All right? But to do it once in a while and just go away and enjoy your family. And remember God. When my family went camping a long time ago, when my dad used to take us, he always took his guitar and we'd sing songs and study the Bible around the campfire. And when you're singing songs outdoors, the people gathered up to hear what the songs are going on. Going on, and we ended up having a having a church with all kinds of people, sometimes not even Christians. <laughs> but you know, this is what God's saying: I have an intimate relationship with you. Are you willing to reach out? Story about the other day, passing out tracks at the at the store. Yeah. Three years ago, you wouldn't have done that, would you? <laughs> Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In my ears, saith the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair without inhabitant. Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an omer shall yield an ephah. All right, so here he puts a criticism on the people. Woe to them that join house to house. Now, I've heard this badly taught in days to days. You're saying, oh, that's like us. We're putting houses next to, next to each other. Literally on this, it's an idiom for our building great big estates. Okay, they build a bunch of houses next to each other and build great big estates. And this was actually what was done to a degree. When you grew up in these families in that day, your family had a plot of land, a very large plot of land in most cases because of the inheritance when you decided that you were going to get married, especially the man, he would go out and he'd build his little little room or something on the uh, family plot, but that was his house. Then he'd go get a bride and he'd take her to his house, but it was on the family inheritance, the family land. And after a while, that would get to a place where you'd have these huge estates. In the first century, these people had large estates. The churches met in people's houses. And they had rooms in some of these houses that would seat hundreds of people in, yard, in, in yards and festival rooms. I have a friend out in Baltimore that he built his house. And on the side, he built this great big 40 by 50 foot room so that he could have Bible studies. Okay? He wasn't even looking to build a church. He just wanted a big room to have Bible studies in and get, gather people together. Yeah. Now, how many people think about that when they're building their house? God, I want a place where I can have people gather together and worship you. Not usually in the forefront of any of our minds. Yeah, you might have a party room. God can use the party room, though, when you, if they get saved. So he can turn it into a meeting room. Um, but, they're not thinking of a meeting. but they're not thinking of a meeting room when they start that. And that's what they're saying. And builds field to field. Just keep adding on properties. Now, how did, how did God prevent this adding field to field process? Did anybody remember? We talked about it a little bit last night. Not that I planned on it for today, but the year of Jubilee. When all the land was returned to its owner every 50 years, the lands would be returned to their owners. The homes would be returned to their owners. Now, the sad thing is that the children of Israel did not follow the year of Jubilee very well, just as they did not follow most of God's laws very well. They would go decades without having a Passover celebration. And then finally, a good king would come in. He'd get rid of all the idols, and he would find, start worshiping God. And they would find the law, the books of Moses, and go, 
and start reading it and realize all the things they weren't doing and have a revival cross, sweep across the land. Yeah. Jubilee, if you buy somebody else's field, technically you were only renting it. You couldn't buy their field and attach it to your field. You couldn't make these mega, mega properties because at the end of 50 years, the property went back to the person who you bought it from. You know, how do people get big farms, and especially our day, these big uh, corporate farms keep buying up all the little farms, and they get bigger and bigger farm. Well, in Israel, if you did that and followed God's laws, at the end of the 50-year jubilee, all these land that you brought to build, to build your great big corporation farm will all go back to the original owners. They're putting their trust in their, their estates. They're putting their trust in their property. Okay, does that help? And God just makes sure that they couldn't keep building this big, big land. Uh, rich people tend to do this. They keep buying all the land around, around their places, and they end up with a bigger and bigger estate, not because they want to live on it, but just isolate themselves or be in possession. Because there, that's the problem. Is he's, you're adding all these things. You're, trying, you're not depending on God. You're depending on your possessions. Trusting in God is what it's coming down to. He says you're building big estates, you're building big farm, you know, big lands. So I'm telling you, don't don't do this stuff. Don't don't put your trust in big, big in things. Put your trust in God. The idea was more the fact that God didn't want us accumulating things to put our trust in. Okay, and it's not necessarily saying it's bad to accumulate. It's not it's not bad to put away for retirement. Okay, but if you've got $20 million put away for retirement and you're still putting away for retirement, you're probably overdoing your retirement and you're putting your trust in your retirement account. Just in, as to what your needs are. Yeah, and maybe a little bit extra. You know, but, but not, okay, God, uh, I have to make sure I cover my, my retirement, so I'm going to put everything away that I can. And we've seen people do that in, in throughout history. People who live as total misers and they die and they've got millions of dollars in the bank but they were always saving for that rainy day i gotta have my money for my rainy day because something might happen and the whole world fall apart and i'll and i will need this now putting money away for a rainy day is good okay we're encouraged to put money away to save money and not spend every penny that we have well, that would lead you to believe that if god really Blessed, you wound up with what we call an excess, then you better find some place to put it. Some of it. Well, that's just it. And that's exactly what it probably should be. If all of a sudden I've got millions of dollars, how much do I, how much do I, well, that's the other problem you get, but how much do I need to live on? Even if I live an extravagant lifestyle, how much do I li need to live on and usually what ends up happening is if you put it all away and trying to live an extravagant lifestyle, you waste, you waste it. And as you said, you end up with a lot of friends who help you waste it. You know, that took, might turn out to be a real problem because you cannot outgive God. And as you got the excess and you kept giving it away, he kept And if you're faithful to give it to him, that's exactly what happens. J.C. Penney, uh, Sears and Roebuck were both people that gave away 90% of all their money. And they were millionaires, even by their standard of living back then. They gave away in 90%. God kept pouring it back out on them. The founder of Caterpillar did the same thing, created Caterpillar, and he gave away 90%. He said, God, I'm going to be faithful to you, and God was faithful back to him. And he kept, you know, when you're a millionaire and, you've get, and, and, you're, giving, and you're only living on 10% of what you're getting, you've given away a lot of, a lot of things. 
And so this is what he's saying. Don't focus on what you have and stuff. Okay? Because God needs to be our focus. God, I am going to put my trust in you. This is why he told the kings of Israel, do not multiply horses unto yourself. Okay? I don't want you depending on your military might. I am your deliverer. I am your victorious one. And this is what God keeps telling us as his people. I am the one you're going to put your trust in. And believe me, I've shared this so many times when people start getting blessed materially, they start turning away from God because they start wanting to spend time with their toys. God, I've been really blessed. I've got my motorcycle, my quad, my vacation house, my boat, and then all of a sudden you don't see him in church anymore. Hey, where have you been? Well, I've been out vacationing. I've been out on the boat. I've been, oh, that's great. What have, what have you been doing for God? Uh, well, you know, uh, I don't know. I kind of been falling away a little bit, or I worship him on the land, or out of, up in the mountain in my vacation home. Uh, and the very blessings that we get sometimes can take us away from God because we take our eyes off the giver and put them on the gifts. And it doesn't have to be physical stuff. This can happen in the spiritual world. We put our eyes on the gifts of God, the gifts of the Spirit. God, give me some of the gifts of the Spirit. I really want the gifts of the Spirit. And when we get them and we just get prideful about the gift that we have instead of keeping our mind that God gave it to us. It can be any area of our life that we can get really taken off stride by looking at the gift and not the giver. And this is what this verse is all about. I build this estate. I build this big land. And then there's no place for me to be alone in the midst of the earth. Have you ever been in that place where it's hard to find God because you've got so much stuff? So much stuff going on around you that you can't get alone with God? I can't get alone with God because everywhere I go is the stuff. It's the stuff I've got. And it's not that the stuff is wrong. Okay? And Timothy says, the, for the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money itself that's the root of the evil. It's my love of the money as I'm stockpiling it up. There, Jesus told the parable of the foolish man who said, I've got all this stuff coming in and I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns because I need to store all my stuff. And it says, you fool, this, this night shall your soul be required of you. And again, it's not that he was wrong in putting it away, but his he wanted to say, I, have, I can have leisure for years. I've got so much stuff, I don't have to, I don't have to do anything anymore. And look how we've fallen into that. It used to be a one-car garage, then it went two, and three, and now popular four garages. Even when it got four garages, they needed to rent a couple of storage spaces. Well, and also think about how houses used to be. You needed a little sitting room for your family, a little kitchen, and a, maybe a small dining room, and a, and a small bedroom, and one bathroom. Now it's like... All right, we've got to have my living room, my dining room, my, my family room. We've got to have one room for everybody and a few extras for, for guests. And, you know, yeah, uh, every room's got to have its own TV, and everybody's got to have their own cell phones, and everybody's got to have their own bathroom. And the houses have gone from little, tiny, you know, four or 5,000 square feet to 20, 30, 40,000 square feet being a considered small home. There's a little bit of pushback that way. For the wrong reasons, though, because it's still a, it's still a strict, uh, prestige thing. Look what I have given up so that I can be 
uh, environmentally correct. They, they're not giving it up for the reason of, I don't need it. They're giving it up for the prestige of show and tell. Show and tell. Look, how, look how good I am. I, I'm protecting the environment with a small ultra mini house. Okay, that's just as bad. Okay, it's just as bad because there are people, including many Christians, who think that poverty is a good thing and something to wear with a badge of honor. Oh, look how poor I am. I, I trust in God with everything. They probably don't, but you know, I don't have money to do anything. Well, that's why you're borrowing from everybody when something happens. Okay, there's no particular badge of honor for being poor or small either. It's who am I putting my trust in? And here he's saying, you, you've joined these great big estates, you've grown these big fields, and nowhere can you find alone time with me because you're so wrapped up in the things, the stuff. And this is why it's so important that we concentrate on God. And this is why Paul said, I've learned to be content with much or with little. Is our contentment in God, whether I have a lot of stuff or I don't have anything, if I'm using that no, nothing as a badge of honor, ah, look at me, I, you know, ah, look how much I trust God. I don't, I don't have any money in the bank. I barely have money coming in. There's nothing particularly righteous and, and spiritual about that. Just as having a huge bank account, there's nothing unrighteous about it. As long as either way, I'm not saying, look at me. Look at what I've got to cover all of this. My trust must be in God. And that's what this verse is about. It's just talking about estates and large, putting my trust in my stuff. Putting my stuff. In my, in, uh, verse 9, in my ears, says the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. Yea, ten acres of vineyard will yield one bath, and the seed of an omer shall yield an ephah. And he says, you're putting your trust in your stuff? I'm going to make them desolate. I'm going to take away your blessings. You're going to, you're going to waste away. Then he talks about 10 acres, the, the amount of land that, ten, that a, a 10 yoke of oxen can plow in a day. That's a lot of land, 10 acres. It says we'll produce one bath, which is about nine gallons. Now, if you're only getting nine gallons of grapes or, or wine out of a full 10 acres of land, you've got a problem. All right, that's not very productive. An omer is about 65 gallons of seed to produce an ephah or nine gallons of seed. Not very good. You're getting less out of your land than you're planting. That would be, God, I better not even plant because I'm wasting my time planting if that's all I'm getting. But again, it's this picture of God saying, you wanted to put your trust in your stuff? I'm going to make sure your stuff does not give you any blessings. And this is the sad thing that so many people who put their trust in their stuff, they get their millions of dollars, and then they either die before they get to use it, or they get so sickly that, it doesn't, that they run through it so fast, or the stock market totally crashes and they lose everything. And God says, where's your trust? Is your trust in me, or was it in your stuff? And he says, you want to you trust in your, in your fields? <laughs> we're going we're to give it. You're not even going to get enough out of that field to supply yourself for, for a week or two out of your entire field. And this is what God still does to this day. If we're putting our trust in anything but him, we find it empty. The world finds it empty. 
And we've talked many times about this. How do we know? Well, look how many superstar athletes or actors or, or singers are dying out of drug abuse and, and alcohol and just so lonely they end up blowing their brains out because they get what they thought was going to be the stuff that would please them and find out there's no pleasure in it. The people who make it to the top of the business world and have millions of dollars but still do not have that pleasure in their money because somebody else has more money than them. Yeah. Every year, Forbes comes out with its top 10 millionaires and bill or billionaires nowadays. All that does is tell the people underneath them, we've got to make more money so we can be number one. And number one has to make more money so he can stay number one. And he's not enjoying any of this stuff because there's never enough stuff to make us happy. And any of us who've tried to chase stuff or, or fame or, or relationships or whatever it might be we're trying to s chase, we always find out it's not enough. If we're not letting God be our fulfillment, the stuff is never going to be enough, whatever the stuff might be. And Solomon is a great example of somebody who tried to chase stuff. After he married his thousand wives and concubines and he fell away from God, he did all kinds of stuff. He started building public, public buildings and parks and roadways and he wasn't satisfied. He started collecting alcohol and couldn't be enough. He started using the alcohol and it wasn't enough. He started getting into to the drugs of their day and it wasn't enough. He started getting into relationships, it wasn't enough. He, everything he did was not enough. And his words over and over in Ecclesiastes is, everything is vanity. Everything is empty. Without God, everything is empty, ultimately. We might have pleasure for a short time, and we all know that sin has some pleasure in it. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it at all. Okay, if we didn't have some pleasure in doing the wrong, at least initially, we would never sin. The sin would not, the sin would not be a problem. Okay, the sin of gluttony, if what we ate immediately showed up on our, on our body in big globules of fat, we would stop eating, overeating real fast. Okay, if there was no pleasure in, in adultery and fornication, nobody would ever do it. Now it's short-lived. The pleasure is short-lived and it becomes less and less with repetition. But it initially has a pleasure. And God says it's not going to last. But our pleasure with God lasts when it is with him. Now sometimes we get people saying, well, I tried God and it didn't work. Well, you don't try God. You give yourself completely to him. And when you've done that, oh, there's nothing better. I can tell you from experience. I've only, I've only been practicing for about 48 years, but... There's nothing better than being in a relationship with God and having him fulfill your every desire. The only times I've had problems is when I've gone off trying to go into work, being a workaholic and trying to make work my focus or other little things I've done. But I need, when we focus on God, oh, the blessings. We have an infinite need to be fulfilled and only an infinite God can fill the infinite need. And nothing else is big enough to fill that need. No matter how many millions, billions, trillions of dollars we get, no matter how many adoring fans we have as an actor or an actress or a sports athletics person, no matter how many friends we have, it's not enough. God says, I am the only one that can fulfill it. And that's what he's saying to these here. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We do thank you for how much you love us. Lord, we thank you that you are the one that fulfills us and that nothing else would fulfill us. Lord, help us to be able to tell others of the need they have for you. 
Help, let us help them understand that they need you so much and that there's nothing else that will fill them. And we ask you to go with us in your son's precious name. Amen.